Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a safe and together coat in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. back and we're back yes. okay you are listening to a partnered with a survivor mini-sode yes on worker safety we took a little hiatus didn't we <laughs> we always say that we do what we did we're not we're... exactly taking a hiatus when we take a hiatus no but this it is a usually break. means we got so busy that we didn't have time to record a podcast but we did other episodes yes. between the other workers so this is part we of the did. series okay. we're doing okay. right yes. and yes. Our worker safety, and I'm David Mandel, the executive director of the Safety Together Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, and I'm the e-learning communications and strategic relationship manager. And these are short, mini-sode, 15-minute or so episodes on a topic. And this is the fourth of what we think is going to be five minisodes on worker safety and well-being. Right. And if you have any suggestions for topics of mini-episodes in the future, please let us know. And we've already covered when workers are targeted by the perpetrator of one of their clients. That was one episode. Mm -hmm. We we talked about the connection between worker safety and engaging perpetrators and mother blaming. Mm -hmm. And the third one was about when workers are being targeted, they're they're being victimized themselves by a partner currently, in, right. and it's impacting the workplace, their workplace performance. Right. Right. And and what to do about that. And then this mini-sode, I like have to think about when I say the word, is, is when workers' past history of abuse. Historical abuse. That's right. Not yes. something they're going through currently, at least right. actively, right. Is, is, is present and is, is something agencies need to think about. And I, and I just want to say this by the outset. One is the two big takeaway messages here for me is this is extremely common, and we're going to give some statistics about this, and it is not a deficit. It's I mean, I think, I, yeah. think, I, think yeah. I think that's sort of the headline. I think, yeah. I think I would there's hate, so much of I that. I would hate for people in HR departments to start identifying people who have trauma as being problematic. That's right. Right. 
And so we're, we're going to talk about it, but I really want to kind of give you the, the bottom line here, which is being uh, somebody with lived experience uh, of intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, or even child abuse and neglect, and working in mental health, working in addiction, mm-hmm. working in uh, child welfare, working in the legal profession is not a deficit. Right. And also you cannot assume that a survivor working in those environments is traumatic for them. Right. It may be empowering. Right. It may feel healing. That's right. There may be a lot of different complex experiences involved. Nobody is linear. People are complex and contradictory. Contradictory, right. So let me give you some stats. And, you know, this is just, um, you know, some of the ideas that are out there. And and there's not enough work been done in this this area, to be honest. Um, But um, one study that was done in Australia looking at Health professionals, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals. This is done by my friend and colleague, Kathy Humphreys, and, and her team, you know, uh, McClendon and, and Hegarty. Um, they found that 45% of participants reported violence by a partner or a family member during their lifetime. Okay, so that's in a, in a medical setting. And this is, um, you know, similar to a study done in Spain. Um, you know, where 26 percent mm-hmm. um, uh, of the the medical professional health professionals uh, had um, experienced some type of abuse or, abuse or lifetime. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, going back to 2003, there was a study of child protection workers in the U.S. that showed half of the sample had histories of intimate partner violence. Right. And, 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 and I would like to point out, I know that some of these, some of these research, um, pieces were physical violence and emotional abuse That's and right. course of control. Right. But it sounds like the framing was mostly physical violence is, so I wonder if the numbers are much, much higher. Well, the numbers may be higher. And I think all these things, like all these studies, the samples have their weaknesses and strengths. Right. You have to be careful right. about generalizing them. Yeah. But, you know, the takeaway for me is when we look at this is, one, we need to be thinking about this more and looking at it. Right. And I'll I'll say in a few minutes for agencies, they need to assume that this is prevalent in a significant portion of their staff. Of their population. That's right. right. Yeah. It's sort of, for me, it's sort of when you want to be domestic violence informed as an agency, some of what you're doing is you're looking at how do you respond to clients and families and domestic violence and families, but how much of it is right. how much on your staff? So, so what I would what I would like to put a pin in, yeah. is that particularly for child protection staff or people who are working within the domestic violence field or working with children and families, that unresolved trauma can create a lot of pressures inside of ourselves to respond to situations that feel similar to our abuse and our danger while not actually truly assessing the present moment reality of what's going on. And so allowing that trauma to interfere in our perceptions of alarm and danger is not an acceptable thing for taking care of families. We have to be able to assess in an independent way and say, here are the behaviors of this instance of this family And be able to separate out a little bit our own trauma. So I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to the professional part because I think you're saying that systems have a responsibility to survivors 
not to to actually have active HR training right. about how to not allow your trauma right from past abuse right. to influence your decision making in the present. So what I'm going to say is the good news is in these studies they actually point to greater sensitivity. Yep. Uh, in a positive way. Mhm. And also, you know, with child welfare workers that they're they're more likely to want to keep those kids good with 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 survivors. But but I think like we said earlier, complex and contradictory. I don't think that's the whole story. Right. And I think your point is it's well, a both and thing. Well, I think it's that I mean, as you've well. had experiences when you've been training um workers where their stuff has been translated into judgments about women. And I oh you, God, there's yes. one that you talk about yeah. very prevalently. Yes. Uh, do you remember the one that you well, talked about? Well, there's a bunch of them, and I think one, and she didn't identify as a survivor, but I, I have suspicion she was. But she said women are making women are staying with abuse, and men are making women look bad. Right. You know, I mean, there was there was that, and then there was another one who she um, she had got out of a horrendous domestic abuse situation and, and was almost killed. It sounded like. Mm -hmm. And and her view was, well, I did it, so she can too. Right. So there was a lack of empathy it because was she was successful. That, was and the lot. assumption That's that right. everybody else's experience is going to be similar. If she can do it, then everybody else That's can right. do it. That's right. That's, uh, that's an attitude that's rife within right. the domestic violence field. If I can do it, if other women can get out, you can too. You're not trying hard enough. And, and that's not okay. And there was a young man who was a new worker, and he had a dad who had been violent to his, to his mom, at least. And... And he was going on a home visit with a, um, a, a perpetrator the first time in a professional setting. And he disclosed to me he's worried he was either going to freeze up or go over the table. Right. This guy. See, you said HR. And I think for me, right. and, I want to go bigger. Wait, I want to go bigger. No, I totally get that. But I just want to say something about that instance. Yeah. Is that in and of itself, many organizations can take that person's disclosure as, as a sign of a problem. Right rather than as the need for that organization to give that person tools in order for them to be able to m navigate that trauma and do their job well. Well, you just you just pointed me in the direction I was going, and, and I, you're often the one who's like... I do that very you well. Do, you do that really well, and I think you're often <laughs> the one who wants to go bigger, and that today I'm going to go bigger, because it's not HR. It's right. HR, and I think agencies work off of a explicit but often implicit template of what a standard worker is like you know you have in the medical field yeah, a right. standard patient right you know when you do training and mm -hmm. you have this idea oh here's a standard patient mm -hmm. and we're going to do scenarios and i think human service agencies i think le the legal profession to be honest as well i think um lots of different addiction mental health that training whether it's university or whether it's professional training that the standard professional that we're envisioning in front of us has to be envisioned as a professional with a history of abuse that they've experienced themselves. Right, and that they've drawn conclusions and assumptions from that abuse. And they have, they have habits which impact teams potentially, not right. always the case. Because a lot of times what happens, like you said, if, if, if somebody's awareness and understanding that these situations exist and they're difficult to navigate and there is no easy answer, then they become more empathetic to the, to the diversity of experience and the diversity of needs for survivors. If they land in a place where they have universalized their trauma and their experience and they see through only that lens, 
they will harm survivors that do not look like them. So what I want to take is what you're saying is because you're you're pointing us towards the dangers. Right. And I want to point us to the responsibility of agencies and the field yeah. to provide support and guidance to workers around these Do issues. It. Do it. Because if 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 we recognize that the standard quote unquote professional is somebody who's likely to have their own experiences of trauma and we're putting them in the field to work with families around violence, that it's negligent to not have a training and supervision set of strategies and agency policy strategies right. that actually look at these things and and look one for the strengths in those workers around those experiences and then also looking where they're where they're struggling to provide them with support so 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 i think that we we've identified that um to kind of summarize that people can be more sensitive they can be more intuitive they can be more compassionate but they also can be more victim blaming they be collusive with perpetrators they can lack engagement with perpetrators. So, I mean, we're, you know, if I've, I'm growing up in a household with my dad was violent or I had an ex-partner who was abusive right. who never changed, right. I may approach every perpetrator as somebody who's not going to change. Or if I grew up in a household that was violent and I made a judgment that it was one party that was the protective party, the person who was not part, not being violent's responsibility to take care of me and protect me. And I didn't feel that I was taken care of and protected. I can easily blame the protective party. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You can project. So all these yeah. things when, you know, one is so on one hand, we have people who have greater sensitivity, awareness, but we also have may have people with unfinished business that need yeah. support. So here's some ideas for agencies and, and systems. Okay. First is assume staff includes survivors of domestic violence and child, child abuse, abuse and neglect yeah. okay? and sexual violence and, and, and just really just assume that and, and reflect upon what that means yeah. for the health and well-being and the practice of the, those agencies. Right. Okay. Review human resources, employee assistance to see if this is an identified and named issue. I mean, it's really very basic, you know, is, is do you have resources? Do you name, do you name services for this? Do you encourage people to get help for it? Mm -hmm. And, 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 and this is important for this to start, and, and we want to encourage us the third thing, for agencies to develop communications and supervision strategies mm -hmm. that start with new workers around their own histories and how to take care of themselves. And I think this is really tricky, but 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 so important, which is right. you don't single people out. You're not saying, hey, you. You're not saying, hey, you, you're a survivor. Therefore, we need to we need to do extra work with you. You're creating a culture and environment yes. where people feel safe to disclose. And I think I think what I've seen is people feel like talking about these things can be perceived as a weakness. Right. And can be perceived as disqualifying them from doing the work if they well, talk about it. Well, that's because that is the attitude in right. many fields and many, many aspects of the field that domestic violence survivors are thought to be biased and they're thought to not be able to be capable of doing the job right. appropriately. That's right. And so, and to name the indicators, I mean, again, to operationalize this, you know, work with supervisors, work with managers, talk about this, which is, you know, here are indicators that you may have stuff to work on fears and resistance around engaging perpetrators when it's part of your job, victim blaming when it, when it's not tied to the reality of somebody you know, engaging in hurtful behaviors, but really, you know, doing that. Symptoms of stress, like self-medicating. You know, people who, you know, who the job is, mm -hmm. they're they're white knuckling it. They're doing their job. Yeah, but they're I drinking would, after work. They're, I would they're, probably they're, add some other some other points uh, in here. To be honest with you, yeah. that don't just have to do with the individual behavior. Yeah, 
but have to do with the team behavior. If you have somebody who's aggressive and command and control, somebody who right. is traumatized by by differing uh, positions and different understandings of the family dynamic, right? Someone who's locked down in a position that is that that obviously is is in a state of alarm where they feel like this is a you know right. you really need to observe the way that they work. Not just it's not just their own manifestations of trauma; it's inter. Team uh, manifestations know, and, and of trauma. Up, a manager or supervisor could be in a team. It could. With a colleague. It could. Okay. Yeah. And then the last thing you know, which we really want to encourage, is 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 looking at staff who are lived, experienced experts as a resource. Right. And, and this is something we're really trying to promote. And and in general, mm-hmm. we think policy. You know, Safe and Together Institute. We we really invest in survivor led solutions. Right. But we think agencies and organizations really need to be thinking about, we've got employees who are both trained professionals mm-hmm. and lived experience experts. How right. are we using them right. to our best advantage right. uh, as part of our team? Right. How are we, how are we using their insights and abilities um, in, in order to expand our understanding of practice? But also, I want to I say something very clearly. Being a lived experience expert does not mean um, necessarily that you're doing good practice. That's right. And that has to be said very clearly. Being a lived experience expert doesn't automatically mean that you are a person who can collaborate with others and build understanding and build better practices. Some people who are lived experience experts use their survivor status as a tool of coercion and a bludgeon to get people to do what they want. And that is a behavioral pattern of command and control. And people should be able to see it when it happens. And I, and I think what you're saying is that that agencies need to um, approach this issue of lived experience experts on their staff with a set of criteria and, yeah. and, and sort of that you're looking for people who have done their work, who, who can or think. Or you're looking for people who are in alignment with your values, right. your culture, your mission and vision honor and respect other people's positions and expertise can collaborate together and are not locked down into singular solutions in a violent and controlling way. Okay. So we're talking about advisory groups where survivors can provide input as survivors and professionals into agency policy and practice. We're talking about creating confidential peer supports, you know, lived experience experts who are trained to help other survivors on staff, mm-hmm. supporting each other about bringing their A game to work. So for me, this is really important. This isn't just about, it's about the well-being of the, the, the human and the professional, but it's about like what you said at the beginning is to make sure that they're able to see what's in front of their face with this family and not allow it to be wrongly colored Mm. by their past experiences Mm. and then to train supervisors to keep focus on professional behavior while supporting workers to get the help they need and and for me when i see Mm -hmm. um and support supervisors and managers who are dealing with a worker who's clearly bringing their own stuff in right you know i say then look you know you can't really dive into somebody's personal history they've got to come to you with it but you can keep your focus on this is good professional behavior. That's bad professional behavior. And if right. you can't focus on what the family needs, you may need to figure out how you get there. And that may mean going to the employee assistance program mm. or whatever else or talking to me in supervision. Mm-hmm. But but 
again, keeping the behavioral focus of what good domestic violence informed practice looks like. Right. Which is partnering with survivors. That's right. Which is which is gathering and viewing the information as it exists in real time, right. not as you would determine it to be through the lens of your trauma or your fears. That's right. So, so th- this is where we're, we're wrapping hip, 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 that was me getting caught and, you know, so not be able to speak. Um, so we're wrapping up here just so just to summarize, um, you know, highly prevalent in, in probably any agency organization you're working in histories of, of, Abuse victimization. Second thing is this is not a problem. Right. These fact, are not bad be, workers. It could be a benefit. That's right. It can be a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, we also need to approach this with complexity and nuance. Like you said, somebody who's a survivor doesn't make them automatically an asset to the organization. Right. Or it to their It depends on their behaviors. It depends on their this behaviors. This is where we live in behaviors, that's people. Right. And then lastly, agencies really need to be thoughtful and proactive around um, Addressing this issue, supporting workers, creating right. support networks, using lived experience experts to advise them. Right. Uh, so we really, uh, we really hope that people can take this to heart. So this is a, a little bit longer mini Sorry, it's, that you know, was me. My fault. That's okay. Um, I'm David Mandel, the Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, and I am the e-learning communications and strategic relationship manager. And if you like this, please share with other people. You can find this on any of your your uh, podcast platforms. You can follow me on Twitter. Yes, you at can. David G Mandel. Do it. You, they can follow you at Twitter. Yes, they can. Where? At Survivor Strong Three. And if you want some e-learning, go to academy.safetogetherinstitute.com or go to our website, safetogetherinstitute.com. And we are are out. out.